from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up, the international choir grows louder for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, but is the time right? We'll do whatever it takes to restore order and quiet uh, and on the security of our people and deterrence. We're trying to degrade Hamas's terrorist abilities and to degrade their will to do this again. That was Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Face the Nation last Sunday. It is just after midnight in Israel, and we'll get an update from CBN News Middle East Bureau Chief Chris Mitchell in just a moment. And the U.S. Army announced late Friday that it now classifies global warming as a serious threat to U.S. national security interest. In April, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin called climate change an existential threat. How did they come to that conclusion? And what does that mean for the mission of our nation's military? We'll talk with Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. In court news, a California district court has not only once again slapped the overreaching hand of California Governor Gavin Newsom, but it was also permanently tied his hands for unconstitutionally restricting churches. Liberty Council founder and chairman Matt Staver is here to explain. And speaking of the courts, the U.S. Supreme Court announcing yesterday it will hear oral arguments in a case out of Mississippi, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which challenges a Mississippi law that allows for abortion only after 15 weeks, only in the cases of medical emergencies or in cases involving severe fetal abnormality. The law strikes at the very heart of Roe and Casey, the prevailing judicial decisions on abortion. Now, this ruling out of the Supreme Court expecting next year is expected to be a landmark decision on elective abortion. We'll talk with the man who signed that law in to place, put it into place, former Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant. And what is happening on the inequality front with the so-called Equality Act? Well, Travis Weber will join me later for that conversation. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on the free speech platform of Gab, it's at Tony underscore Perkins. Let me encourage you once again, download the app, the Stand Firm app. That way you can listen to Washington Watch no matter where you might be. Also, you'll get alerts as to when you need to take action to protect your fundamental rights. Again, you can download the app by going to the App Store. It's the Stand Firm app. And by the way, men, if you're in Colorado, especially in the Denver or Colorado Springs area, coming up June the 19th, we have our Stand Courageous Men's Conference, one-day conference. It's going to be in Woodland Park, Colorado. To find out more, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com, and follow the links over. All right, as the fighting between Israel and Hamas moves into its 10th day, reports coming out of the Middle East suggest subtle signs are beginning to emerge that suggest the two sides are inching toward a ceasefire. Joining us with the latest from Jerusalem, where it is just after midnight, is Chris Mitchell, Middle East Bureau Chief for CBN News and host of CBN News Channel's Jerusalem Dateline. Chris, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Tony. So what, uh, give us this delay of the land, what's happening right now in, uh, in Jerusalem and in Israel? 
Well, so far, I think over 3,700 rockets have been fired uh, out of Gaza uh, by Hamas and other Islamic terror groups into uh, southern and central Israel. About a week ago, they landed uh, near here in Jerusalem, where I am right now. Uh, and then in retaliation, Israel has responded with hundreds of strikes against the Hamas uh, infrastructure uh, during that time. And as you said, right now, there are indications that maybe Thursday morning at 6 a.m., there might be a uh, ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. Uh, both sides are denying that right now. And as you played that clip with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, he wants Israel to be able to degrade uh, Hamas's ability to wage war against uh, against Israel uh, for a long time to come. There is one IDF official that is quoted by saying they've degraded or they, they expect perhaps as much as five years of quiet from Hamas after this, uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens in the next couple of days. Don't we? And Chris, isn't that kind of the process? I mean, I've, I've kind of noticed that over time that, you know, they'll launch these rockets, they get into this uh, conflict with Israel, and Israel then will take the opportunity in defending itself to also to degrade their ability so that they buy a certain amount of, uh, you know, a few years of peace. Exactly, exactly what they've done. And what how this started, uh, Tony, just about a week ago Monday, was that Hamas had fired rockets into Jerusalem. The idea behind Hamas was that they were protecting the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the Temple Mount, and Jerusalem itself uh, against uh, what they said was heavy-handed uh, police action inside the mosque and on the Temple Mount. And uh, they thought they were going to be defending uh, Jerusalem. I don't think they expected the kind of retaliation by Israel. And I'm not sure Israel ex expected the number of rockets that would be fired out of there. But Israel has been preparing for this for years. Uh, they had their targets planned, and they've done what they could to degrade Hamas. While doing this, Tony, uh, Hamas has been committing this double war crime of firing rockets outside or inside civilian areas next to schools or hospitals or mosques and firing them indiscriminately into civilian areas in uh, inside Israel. Earlier today, we we're in a place, uh, Beersheba. Uh, we were at the home of, a, of a, uh, <clears throat> a pastor, actually, who had a direct hit on his uh, apartment uh, Saturday morning. And that's just one of many examples of uh, people around uh, Israel that whose homes have been hit uh, thankfully, because of the Iron Dome, not nearly as many, but uh, this is what Israel is protecting itself against, this kind of indiscriminate rocket fire into uh, central and southern Israel, affecting nearly 4 million Israelis. Now, today, the uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, in solidarity with those in Gaza, uh, did a work stoppage. What, uh, what occurred today? How widespread was that? Well, fairly widespread. It was called a day of rage. There were disturbances here in Jerusalem at the Damascus Gate uh, on the West Bank line. There was a, a tragedy about, uh, there was a number of uh, a large demonstration and uh, firing from Palestinians into uh, IDF soldiers. They returned fire. Three Palestinians were killed during that time. Uh, but it's a sign of the tension here inside Israel as well. And uh, not only in Jerusalem, but different parts of the West Bank, the concern for many here in Israel is that this will uh, it, it continue. Uh, we'll see if there is a ceasefire in Gaza, but uh, the hope and prayer for many people is that this violence within Israel will subside. Chris Mitchell, what's the sense there on the ground from Israelis when it comes to the United States? Do they still see uh, the United States as a strong ally and defender? 
Well, I think uh, after the change in administration, I'm not sure they feel the same thing as they did with the Trump administration. Just across the street where I'm standing uh, or sitting right now is the uh, U.S. Embassy. And I thought they believed the uh, Trump administration was one of the most robust defenders of Israel during this time. I think there's a sense uh, that not nearly that kind of support right now uh, with the Biden administration. And I think they understand the internal conflict going in in the Democratic Party between those in the White House uh, and those in Congress who are calling, uh, actually uh, condemning Israel for defending itself. So I think that internal tension within the Democratic Party there we are in Washington is, uh, is, is certainly being affected here and understood here in Israel. And Chris, that uh, is fueled by the secular media as well. That's why we're so grateful for CBN being there on the ground uh, as you are. Uh, they're fueling this narrative that the Democratic Party and leaders here in the United States are are swallowing hook, line, and sinker. But, you know, you hear this thing about apartheid and how they're repressing uh, the Israeli people. And it's reading an AP story about, uh, you know, how they're blaming Israel for wanting to uh, ultimately assert Jewish supremacy. Well, I mean, it is a Jewish state. Uh, I don't see them going to Saudi Arabia and asking them why they do not allow, um, you know, other representations in their government where Israel actually allows Palestinians to be elected uh, to the Knesset and to serve in positions of leadership. Yeah, in fact, there's uh, over a dozen, I believe, uh, Arab members uh, in the Knesset. There's actually one party called the Ra'am and his leader, Mansour Abbas. There had been negotiations before all this rocket started going to be part of the uh, Israeli government. Uh, so if you hear on the ground, Tony, there's a whole different story. Uh, it's not the apartheid state that many people accuse it of, of it, not nearly what South Africa was back in the 1970s. Uh, so that label kind of sticks, though, sometimes. Let me just give you an idea about Sheikh Jarrah, which is one of the pretexts of this uh, of this beginning of the story. It's really a local dispute between Jews and Arabs about the control of the land and who should pay who rent. It's a bit simplistic uh, of it, but it's not the Israeli government uh, evicting people. And that was one of the pretexts the cause celeb uh, that uh, Palestinians were saying started this. Uh, I would say the other thing, uh, Tony, is you need to realize that uh, Israel is doing all it can to prevent civilian casualties inside the Gaza Strip. They have surgical strikes. They knock on the roof, meaning they, they tell the people in a particular building, please get out of the building. We're going to destroy that because it's part of the Hamas war machine. Uh, I, I think that gets lost in the fog of war. And I think people lose sight of actually who's the aggressor here and who's the one firing indiscriminately into civilian areas. Would the United States expect this? What would their reaction be if rockets were coming from Canada and or Mexico? And how would they respond? I think that's a question a lot of people uh, could ask there in the U.S. Yeah, and uh, going back to what is what is said to be the cause of this or the what ignited it, is that the case, Chris, or was that just a convenient um excuse uh, maybe for the, the Palestinians to test the resolve of the United States under this new administration in terms of backing Israel. Because as you've said, we've already have members of the Democratic Party, you know, calling to halt the sale of arms to to Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we I, clearly a change of administration, a change of philosophy when it comes to Israel. Yeah, uh, the Sheikh Jarrah case right now, uh, a lot of people see that as a pretext 
by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas to stir up uh, foment here inside Jerusalem because he had canceled the elections, the Palestinian elections, for the first time in almost 15 years. Remember, he's the president serving uh, a four-year term now in his 15th year, and I think that was the beginning uh, of what happened right now. And one other point, uh, Tony, that I think people should realize is that our Iran is the one that is funding, uh, uh, arming, and uh, supplying weapons to Hamas and other Islamic groups, especially the Palestinian Islamic Jihad within Gaza. And so when you realize that the U.S. is now negotiating to renew the Iranian nuclear deal and possibly lifting sanctions, you wonder how much of that money could be diverted back to Hamas and other terror groups and actually uh, being able to fire against uh, our number one ally in the Middle East, Israel. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and one other point to make is that the Palestinians still refuse to recognize Israel's right to exist. So it's kind of hard to have peace when you can't even agree that your neighbor has a right to, uh, to exist. Chris Mitchell, always great to talk with you. Thanks for staying up late and joining us tonight. Great to be with you, Tony. All right, Chris Mitchell coming to us live from Jerusalem. Bureau Chief for uh, CBN News, great resource for you folks. Uh, we need to continue to pray. In fact, tomorrow night, uh, Chris Mitchell will be joining us for our Pray Vote Stand weekly broadcast uh, live from Jerusalem. He'll be joining us uh, talking about the latest there as uh, hopefully we do move uh, toward a ceasefire peace agreement. It's it's only managed peace. You know, for those that know biblical truth and uh, prophecy, that area has been, will be turbulent until the Prince of Peace comes. All right, don't go away. Tom Cotton, Senator from Arkansas, joins us next. Don't go away. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. Here's a moment of hope for your home with Jerry and Becky Drace. Have you ever watched your children play with clay? It's amazing what they can create. Listen to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are work in your hand. When we trust God with our life and the lives of our families, you know what? He will mold us into a testimony of his righteousness and blessings. He can take even the most broken and shattered family and recreate it into a thing of beauty. Just as your children can create something from a lump of clay, so can God. 
Learn more about the ministry of Jerry and Becky Drace, including evangelism with integrity, devotions, articles, and more at hopeforthehome.org. This has been a moment of hope for your home. How do we change a nation? One heart at a time. The ministry of Preborn not only shares heartbeats, but shares hearts by loving women in crisis and leading them to Christ. When this mother came to a preborn center, she was scared and not sure she could afford another child. It was just a scary time for us, having my daughter, how that would impact our lives. When I came here, it was just so amazing to come to an environment where someone would actually pray for me and guide me through my battles that I was facing during that time. After receiving love, support, and the gospel of Christ, this mom chose life for her daughter. You can be a part of rescuing lives and changing hearts for Christ. For $140, sponsor five ultrasounds, and you'll receive a story and pictures of babies' lives that were spared. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or go to preborn.com. Your gift is tax deductible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to uh, to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, earlier today, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the Biden administration had, quote, received further information, end quote, regarding Israel's airstrike on a high-rise building in Gaza that hosted offices for the Associated Press and Al Jazeera. But he declined to comment further. Now, here is the... Uh, CEO of the AP, Mr. Pruitt, uh, commenting on this over the weekend. Tell you that we've been in that building for about 15 years with our bureau. We certainly had no sense that Hamas was there. We would like to see the evidence. Uh, We're not sure whether Hamas was there or not. We don't know. But I can tell you the impact will be that the world will know less about what's going on in Gaza. Didn't know that they were in the building, uh, despite reports that says they have been there for quite some time. Joining me now to talk more about this, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who serves on the Intelligence and the Armed Services Committee. Senator, welcome to the program. Hey, Tony, it's good to be back on with you. So what about the AP's claims that they had no idea that Hamas was in the same building? Well, Tony, uh, I don't know what would be worse under circumstances if the AP knew that they were sharing office building with Hamas um, and allowed themselves to be, in effect, human shields, or if they didn't know. I mean, a a former AP reporter has written multiple times over the years, going back to 2014, that Hamas fighters would break into the AP office and threaten AP staff, or they'd look out their window from this office and they'd see Hamas fighters in the street shooting missiles and rockets and mortars. You, You would think that someone at that point over the years, Tony would say like, hey, I wonder why Hamas is always running around our office building. Or, you know, maybe some responsible leader at the AP would think, you know, maybe we should get our employees safer offices in a better neighborhood. Um, So the AP has a lot of uncomfortable questions to answer. But what there can be no doubt about is that Israel's strike against this building was totally justified and wholly appropriate. 
um, if the Associated Press wants to blame anyone for losing its office space, it should blame Hamas for intentionally hiding behind civilians. Uh, Senator, can you uh, conf have you seen the intelligence that uh, Israel makes reference to in terms of the smoking gun that was shared with the administration? I have not personally seen that intelligence, Tony, but I have no reason to doubt it. Um, and Israel has a long and well-documented history of going far beyond what's required by the law of warfare um, to ensure that it is minimizing civilian casualties against um, a evil adversary who tries to maximize civilian casualties. So I have every confidence in what the government of Israel uh, has communicated publicly and to our government. In fact, in this case, they gave uh, the occupants of that building over an hour's notice that they needed to exit the building and take valuables with them because the building was going to be uh, hit. Um, you know, Gary Pruitt, who is the CEO of the AP, uh, said that, you know, had no knowledge. That was the clip I just played here moments ago. But you made reference to a 2014 piece from The Atlantic written by a reporter in the region that detailed this long and questionable history between the AP and this uh, the jihadist group. It almost sounds like me, you know, it's, it's like the, you know, in New York where the mob provides cover for certain businesses uh, that they were afraid of, uh, uh, of Hamas and they just didn't report on what they saw so that they could stay in the neighborhood. Um, there's a strong case to be made for that, Tony. Um, this former AP reporter himself has said that they didn't report on the fact that the AP burst into the, uh, or that the Hamas burst into the AP offices to threaten their staff or was using the office as cover to shoot missiles from right outside. Um, I, I think this debate uh, that's been sparked by Israel's totally justified strike on this building is actually uh, pretty healthy because it's highlighting um, just what the so-called media reports from a place like Gaza really are. They are little more than laundered propaganda from terrorist organizations like Gaza or the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Just put yourself, yeah. Tony, in the position of one of those so-called reporters or correspondents who lives in Gaza, oftentimes locally employed Palestinians. Um, do you think that you can report what Gaza or what Hamas is doing in Gaza, the way they use hospitals and nurseries and playgrounds as cover to fire their missiles and rockets? What do you think would happen to you and your right. family if your reporting of such a fact shows up uh, over your byline in the media? So, so in, a way, in a way, this debate is pretty healthy because it's highlighting just how deeply corrupted so-called media reports are from places right. like the Gaza Strip. And, and Senator, that's that's the bigger issue here as a, as a veteran, combat veteran yourself, as a U.S. senator, you know, if the media can't report fact out of fear, they shouldn't be there at all because that information is then processed and it's not accurate and it's not the whole picture. Yeah, I mean, if you're not someone that lives and breathes this stuff, Tony, you just pick up the Associated Press reporting. Uh, maybe you see it in your local weekly uh, newspaper in places like Jonesboro or Russellville or Conway or El Dorado, Arkansas, and you kind of equate that Associated Press reporting to what you get from the AP reporter in Little Rock, when nothing could be further from the truth. Right. Um, it, is, it is a way, again, for Hamas and these other terrorist organizations to launder propaganda 
through legitimate Western news sources in a way that substantially influences the Western public's understanding what's happening. That's one reason why you see uh, so many Western political leaders putting pressure on Israel anytime these conflicts break out because the news environment in their countries are shaping public opinion in a way that's unfavorable to uh, Hamas. So from Hamas's standpoint, it is a fantastic information operation. Uh, Senator, you hear that music, we're out of time, and I'm sorry because I wanted to get to the Army now prioritizing climate change as a serious threat to national security. We gotta talk about that. I'm gonna get you back on again so we can because I think this undermines our military's mission, and I wanna get your input on that. So, Senator, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Tony. All right, folks, we're gonna have to save that topic for another day, but it's a big one, and uh, we will talk about it. Coming up next, we'll be uh, talking to Matt Staver, who is the founder and chairman of Liberty Council about a major court decision out of California that not only slaps the hands of Governor Newsom, but ties them when it comes to unconstitutionally infringing upon the rights of churches. That's next. Don't go away. Making the most of your money. Here's Dan Celia on American Family Radio. There seems to be more and more concerns about inflation and more and more concerns about the state of the economy and in and around workforce. I expect that automation is going to take off in a big way, particularly in the fast food restaurant industry, but it's going to quickly go to more and more grocery stores and you'll see self-checkout pretty much everywhere you go in the next year and a half. They are far more cost effective than employees and will take some of the pressure off feeling the need to raise hourly wages for those kinds of positions. That also means the less skilled workers will start to see a bigger increase in unemployment than will other people with a skill or a trade, or maybe just with a little bit more experience. There are so many things being impacted here that will impact everything from the healthcare sector to the retail sales and retail workers, drivers, deliveries, all of that cost going up. Two reasons. We have fuel prices, higher wages, and this is inflation that is going to be here to stay. And if we have continued inflation with no growth in the economy, then we're looking for a bit of a disaster like scenario. Want to hear more financial advice from Dan Celia? Look for his podcast at AFR.net. This is Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. Good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. By the way, be sure and download the Stand Firm app so that you can take Washington Watch with you wherever you go. Yesterday, 
Churches in California were given a major victory when a California federal district court judge issued the first statewide permanent injunction in the entire United States against the coronavirus restrictions that had been placed on churches and places of worship. Now, under the agreed injunction that is binding on California, California may no longer impose discriminatory restrictions upon houses of worship. With me now to talk about the legal struggle behind this victory is Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council, which filed the lawsuit against the California government on behalf of Harvest Rock Church and Harvest International Ministry. Uh, Matt, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tony. It's good to be with you. Congratulations. A major victory for Liberty Council. It's a major victory. It's the first in the nation statewide permanent injunction, and the district court retains jurisdiction for into the foreseeable future, whether it's next year, 10 years down the road. If there's any violation of this order, California will be hauled right back into court for contempt of court and face significant sanctions. So this is a great victory, and it covers every church and place of worship in California. And as you know, there are some churches that were fined over $3 million. All of those will go away because of this injunction. Well, again, a uh, tremendous job on behalf of Liberty Council. Of course, a Harvest Church, uh, Pastor Cheon, uh, who is the pastor there. I've, I've spoken in his church. You know, you have to have pastors willing to stand up so that you can yeah. defend their rights. Yeah, in fact, uh, I was just talking to Pastor Che, and, you know, he got pushed back when he made this decision, but he put his hand to the plow, and he didn't look back. People falsely accused him, saying, you're going to have super spreaders, you're, you don't care about people, all of which was false, and none of which happened. And But also, he got a letter from the Pasadena criminal prosecutor threatening him, his staff, and get this, Tony, anybody who comes to church with daily criminal charges up to one year in prison and daily fines of $1,000. And so he had to tell his church members and he had to put it out in his media sources that we just got this letter. And if you come to church, I just want you to know you could face criminal charges. Well, you know, he wondered whether people would just simply not come to church anymore. There was a few, but very few. And in fact, what happened is more people who were looking for churches, even unbelievers, started coming to this church and he's seen revival taking place in his churches throughout California and throughout the state of California. And I know other pastors are seeing the same thing. Pastors that stood up against this adversity, this persecution, they're seeing revival happening in their communities. So as a part of this settlement, the, 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 the governor, the state of California agreed to these, the, to, uh, to the stipulations in this, or it was forced upon them? Well, it was forced upon them. They ultimately agreed. We, 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 pres they, we actually uh, were approached by them. Uh, we went to the Supreme Court twice and we got two victories, one on December the 3rd, 2020, and then the most recent one, February 5, 2021. Uh, but those were temporary victories. And then uh, we were pursuing the ultimate permanent injunction at the Court of Appeals, but the court gave us a long time in advance uh, down the road, oral argument dates, July, August, September. We couldn't wait that long. So we filed our third emergency injunction at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And after that, they came back and said, you know what, uh, we need to settle this case. The handwriting was on the wall. It wasn't a matter of if we would win at this point, it was a matter of when, and they saw that, they realized it. And then we presented them what the criteria would be. They first gave us some uh, minimal proposal and we said, no, we want a full blown, complete total settlement, 
complete uh, um, equal treatment, no more discrimination across the board. They ultimately agreed. We entered in the settlement, the court approved it, and now it's a binding court order. And as a result, they also have to pay $1.35 million to compensate a portion of our time and expenses, our attorney's fees and costs that we expended. This case involved thousands of hours, day and night, early mornings, weekends, holidays, for a number of months. So Matt, this stats, uh, not just for this pandemic, the way they did it, but as you said, this is binding. So if there's another outbreak a year from now, five years from now, they cannot do what they have done over the past year. Exactly. You know, originally they came and they said, let's just uh, talk about uh, the time and reimbursement. We said, no, we're, we're not in this uh, for that. We want a permanent relief. We don't want to ever go down this road again. And so that's when we entered into the settlement negotiations on the order that's now been entered. And that means it doesn't matter whether it's COVID, this governor or some future governor, whether it's some other, you know, crisis that they declare, they can never do what's happened in California, again, that'll never be repeated. And that's the, that's the importance of this particular permanent statewide injunction. Extremely important. And again, uh, job well done, Matt Staver. Uh, let me ask you this final question. Will this influence other states? May we see them kind of backing off as a result of this court decision? Well, we've already seen states backing off because of the multiple Supreme Court trips that have happened. And we've had five of those uh, cases. There have been 12 different uh, cases at the Supreme Court. We filed five. And so as a result, they started to back off and California started to see the handwriting on the wall. But this will actually help those dominoes fall. In fact, uh, Tony, we've already filed this settlement in all the other cases where we're litigating around the country. Maine right now is the most restrictive in the country. And our good friend, you know him, uh, Pastor Ken Graves. We represent him there with Calvary Chapel of Bangor. So we are moving to knock down the rest of the dominoes, and we are using this settlement as a catalyst, showing that the handwriting is on a wall. They just need to ultimately wave the red flag. They need to do the right thing, and they never need to go down this road again. We want to make sure that that never happens. Our goal is to make sure we never go across this bridge ever again. Caesar never can go and touch these churches anymore. That's our ultimate goal, and that's what we're working on around the country. Well, Matt Staver, job well done. Thanks so much for joining. Today, moral relativism and political correctness are assaulting truth. How can the world have hope when believers themselves aren't clear on the authority of the Bible? The Church of Jesus Christ always faces a tremendous temptation to deviate from the Word of God. The God who speaks clearly expresses God's intent in giving us His Word and the response that is demanded of those who hear. Nobody ever encounters God and says, that was boring and irrelevant. When people say that about the Bible, it just says to me, they've not encountered the God of the Bible. Our faith is rooted in history and, and consequently we need to use the evidence and never be afraid of it. The God who speaks is a feature-length documentary from the American Family Association, which could bolster your confidence in the Word of God. Churches really need to see this, really need to understand what the Bible actually is. Available now at thegodwhospeaks.org. 
American Family Radio newscasts are now available as a podcast. I'm Rusty Pugh. I'm Steve Jordahl. Didn't catch the full story? Listen to the podcast. I'm Chris Woodward. I'm Chad Groening. Didn't have the radio on at the top of the hour? Listen to the podcast. I'm Charlie Bunch. And I'm Fred Jackson. Get accurate news from a Christian perspective whenever you want it with the American Family News podcast. You can also sign up for our daily news brief. Visit onenewsnow.com. When you love somebody, you do something. Oh, if our churches could just get a hold of this. Don't sit there in a pious, self-made sanctuary and say, oh, I really love God, and then never lift a finger to help anybody. Join Dr. David Jeremiah for his series, 10 Questions Christians Are Asking, next time on Turning Point. 5.30 a.m. and 7 p.m. Central on American Family Radio. Every day they get up, put on their uniforms, and walk out their doors in order to keep our families safe. They never know what they'll face, but they face it anyway with bravery and determination. There's been so much hatred toward law enforcement lately that we can't emphasize enough just how important it is for us to lift up our local peace officers, to let them know how much we appreciate them for all they do for our communities. That's why Sunday, June 13th has been set aside as a day of prayer for law enforcement. Please help spread the word to your family, your friends, and especially your pastor. You can get more information and suggestions for ways to encourage them at afa.net. The brave men and women who serve and protect our families deserve our respect and our appreciation. The American Family Association supports law enforcement, and we hope you'll join us in showing your support on Sunday, June 13th. Visit AFA.net. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, more court news. Big news yesterday from the U.S. Supreme Court when they agreed to hear arguments in a case coming out of Mississippi. Now, the bill, the law at hand is the at question is the 2018 Gestational Age Act, which passed in Mississippi, that uh, allows for abortion after 15 weeks only in medical emergencies or in cases involving fetal abnormality. What this does is sets up the first major challenge to Roe v. Wade since uh, 1992. Uh, when there was another challenge, and which has been the prevailing ju- judicial uh, opinion uh, since that time, uh, joining me now to talk about this is the, the the man who actually signed this bill into law, former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant. Governor Bryant, welcome back to the program. Tony, thank you so much. It's a great day to be on, and good news from our Supreme Court. It is, and I remember uh, you and I talking about this when you signed it into law. Uh, and this is what you hoped would happen, that you would be able to take a stand for the unborn and that this might make its way to the Supreme Court and be the case that the court would take up. Well, absolutely. Many of us, Tony, over the years have doubted Roe v. Wade, where it came from, where is it in the Constitution, particularly when you talk about pre-viability, 15 weeks and beyond. So, and, and also, uh, does the state have a compelling interest in protecting the lives of children? 
Well, the answer is, of course we do. If that mother's ingesting cocaine or other dangerous drugs, we might charge her with child abuse. If someone would fire a weapon and strike that child as a mother is pregnant uh, at that time, we would charge them with, uh, with murder or, or a homicide. But if you decide that you want to abort that child, then these organizations that stand against us say, well, it's not in the compelling interest of the state. You can't have it both ways. You cannot have a law uh, that protects children in the event that some uh, outside force would harm that child, but say it's okay as long as the mother consents. Uh, and so we believe there is a, a direct coalition between protection of the child, the compelling interests of the state, and what the cases that the Supreme Court has heard previously. And we are anxiously awaiting uh, October, hopefully an October date. The 1992 case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which has set the jurisprudence presently uh, for uh, the abortion, I, I don't want to say laws because they've not been they've not been passed by legislatures. This has been imposed upon states by the Supreme Court, but now with what appears to be a constitutional based majority on the court, there's a good chance that we could see the whole issue of abortion sent back to the states uh, where it belongs. Absolutely. And we think, of course, this is a state's rights issue. Do I have the right to protect unborn children in the state of Mississippi as governor? The number one responsibility of any executive, and I would dare say also legislature and judicial officer, is to protect the citizens. This is our constitutional responsibility to protect the citizens of the state of Mississippi, particularly, we believe, our faith leads us to believe that unborn child. So the court has this uh, pre-viability abortion that cannot be challenged. So that's only existed again in case law. So we began to look at the entire scope of this matter. And, and uh, does a state have a right and uh, a compelling interest in the protection of the life of that child. This is what the Supreme Court will be hearing. We believe, obviously, it will be in the affirmative. I will tell you, our female Republican uh, Attorney General, Lynn Fitch, did a remarkable job uh, of presenting this case, this argument to the Supreme Court, after a, an Obama-appointed federal district judge turned it down and rejected it. After the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld that rejection, uh, our determined Republican woman, Lynn Fitch, Attorney General of the state of Mississippi, fought a courageous battle uh, uh, to convince the Supreme Court to hear this case. I want to congratulate that strong woman who is in defense of the unborn child each and every day of her public service. Yeah, I noted a uh, quotation from her. She said, America cannot be a human civilized society if its courts preclude lawmakers from imposing reasonable limits on the taking of innocent life. Uh, she's aggressively defending as an attorney general should. That's a breath of fresh air for you. You didn't always have that in, uh, in Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, and you've constantly faced uh, Judge Carlton Reeves uh, with laws that you passed. This has to be gratifying that this has gone to the Supreme Court. And I would add to this, Governor, uh, I saw this when I was a legislator. People say, wait a minute, now, now's not the right time. Now's not, don't do this yet. Uh, you know, we're not ready for this. You know, and my response 
always was, it's never the wrong time to do the right thing. And I think Absolutely. this proves that point. Obviously, it's going to be a year before we get the decision, but it certainly has been teed up to protect the unborn all across America. And, and I think as we talk about listening to the science today, Tony, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to listen to the science. We want to listen to see uh, that child is suffering, the pain uh, that that child is going through. What about the threat of the mother? There's greater risk to the mother. Scientifically, we know this after 15 weeks, yet the abortion industry that uses a dilation and evacuation process after 15 weeks wants to ignore that science. They want to say, no, 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 that the circulatory system is not developed at this point, that the, the, the infant doesn't feel full pain after 15 weeks of this horrible dismemberment that takes place. Science is on our side, and we look forward to arguing this case. Now, these legal matters, not only states' rights, but the science uh, of this particular pre-viability case before the United States Supreme Court. And again, uh, our uh, female attorney general is going to be there on the battleground fighting for the unborn. Uh, now, Phil, in the case that was previously before the Supreme Court uh, on uh, Louisiana's law regarding abortion clinic regulations, which I authored the first iteration of, this was a this was a second, third generation of that law, uh, you had two nominee or two appointees from Donald Trump, Neil, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh that went the wrong way uh, on uh, that to uh, allow the that law to go into place. Are you concerned about where they might be on this one? We absolutely are. Uh, we've been surprised before by some of the more moderate members of the courts. But again, if you look at case law, and I am told by some of our finest attorneys in the uh, attorney general's office, that the case here is clear. The state can prove, we believe, beyond a reasonable doubt that the state of Mississippi does have a compelling interest in protecting children. And so that is the heart of the matter here. And if so, then that authority needs to be returned to the states. And that's exactly why I signed this law into effect, because I believe the state had not only the legal right and the compelling interest, but the obligation. We are obligated to protect these children. And I think even the most moderate Supreme Court justice has to see uh, not only the wisdom of the 10th Amendment, but the fact that the, that, that the state of Mississippi was doing no less than we had to do for the compelling interest that we have of the unborn children that are Mississippians and are citizens of the United States of America and therefore have the constitutional right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, Governor Phil Bryant, again, I want to uh, congratulate you on this landing before the Supreme Court. Uh, we'll be watching it uh, very carefully as they have the oral arguments and then move toward a decision. Uh, but I know, uh, you know, governors oftentimes they sign things because legislators uh, pass them. But I know this is one that you were calling for, cheering for, uh, and you have been a strong, strong advocate for the unborn and for religious freedom, I might add. And uh, I want to thank you for your leadership. Well, thank you so much, Tony, and thank you for letting everyone hear uh, the position of Mississippi and what you're doing for the United States of America. God bless you all. All right, uh, Governor Phil Bryant, uh, that's good good news, not just for Mississippi, but for the entire nation that this law now uh, is going to be heard before the Supreme Court. It, it's 
every decade and a half or so, the court will take up almost every two decades. If you look at it, it was 1973, Roe v. Wade. Uh, then 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And here we are almost two decades later, uh, and they'll be taking up the, uh, actually three decades later, uh, taking up this uh, case out of Mississippi. So um, be prayerful, but this could very well send uh, the whole issue of abortion back to the states. And then you see, you already have states that have acted upon this in anticipation of a case. They don't know which, they didn't know which one, but a case making its way to the Supreme Court, these trigger laws where uh, states will immediately ban abortion uh, once it is uh, thrown back to the states to make that decision. And, you know, the end result is America is going to be a predominantly pro-life nation again. This is, um, you know, for years people have been praying repenting of abortion. Well, repentance requires action, turning, turning away from what we've been doing, and we're changing the laws. And this is this has been a, um, a holistic process. It's not just the laws that have been changed. It's the hearts and minds of people. Technology's played a role. Science has played a role. The crisis pregnancy centers, the uh, ministries that are out there caring for these uh, women and these babies, that's been playing a role. Adoption, that's been playing a role. Uh, we're reaching a moment where we could very well see in the midst of all of the other challenges, we could deal with this one issue, which I think is quite significant. Uh, when you look at the spiritual, cultural, moral landscape of America. Well, let me, uh, joining me now is Travis Weber, Vice President of Policy and Government Affairs here. I wanted to bring him in uh, on this and the Equality Act. Uh, Travis, the good news uh, out of the Supreme Court with them deciding to take this Mississippi case, because this really does set up, as I mentioned, a number of states have already passed what we call trigger laws, that once this goes back to the, the, the uh, states, they've already decided abortion will be outlawed. And Tony, that's right. A number of states passed these laws. Really, if you look across the landscape on pro-life legislation, there's all sorts of laws that have reached various stages of successful challenges to them in the courts that would be allowed to stay in place depending on what the court does in response to the Dobbs case when it finally hands down the decision on this Mississippi law. So I do think uh, we're at a hopeful moment here, um, both in trigger law, both with trigger laws and other state statutes that um, might be positively affected by the Mississippi case when the court decides it. Uh, and another topic I want to bring up, uh, Travis, I was out uh, end of last week uh, on a prayer and planning retreat that I like to go on quarterly just to uh, to think through some things and plan for the next quarter. Uh, but on Friday, an article came out in, the, in uh, Fox News suggesting that uh, we were working with uh, other religious groups on a compromise on the Equality Act. And uh, we've been very clear on this uh, while we're, we're, we work with all members of Congress to point out problems with legislation and give direction. Uh, there can be no compromise on the Equality Act because of its attack on our First Amendment freedom. Yeah, Tony, that's right. Any reports that, you know, we're looking at compromising, use that word or take other words, you know, substitute some alternative to the Equality Act. FRC has always rejected such uh, positions with regard to the equality, and we still do. We're still going to engage with any anyone on Capitol Hill or elsewhere who wants to know our position and our views on the Equality Act. But 
as you know, and as we talked about a lot, the Equality Act is tainted to its core, pose incredible problems for um, issues across the board, not only religious freedom, but the areas of, of science and healthcare affecting the LGBT community themselves. It would expand abortion and ingrain all sorts of coercive policies throughout federal law. And whatever alternatives are being floated, fairness for all, any other, other options like that, pose similar challenges. They largely um, are the same nuts and bolts as the Equality Act. So when we look at these bills, uh, there really is no solution that could be found in terms of tweaking them or modifying them. Um, they need to be defeated and stopped. And, and members who want a good bill to get behind need to get behind one of the solid religious liberty proposals we've supported and other religious freedom advocates have supported in the past. You know, once again, uh, President Biden calling for the passage of the Equality Act, which you know, is 75% of it's focused on LGBTQ and which would uh, torpedo religious freedom, inc including the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But as you pointed out, it also deals with the issue of abortion, elevating it to a fundamental right, which would uh, undercut even what the court is deciding on Roe v. Wade. Yeah, Tony, it would expand abortion access through the way it interprets sex non-discrimination to to include pregnancy. So the Equality Act, um, problematic from the perspective of the life issue for us, uh, from the perspective of how it, it distorts the family and promotes coercive policies that undermine the family, and uh, how it, it torpedoes religious freedom, really steamrolled and flattens the concept of religious freedom by gutting the Religious Freedom Restoration Act from being applicable in this context and in mm -hmm. um, providing no way forward for religious freedom to prevail once the Equality Act passes. All right, Travis Weber, out of time. We'll leave it there. Thanks so much for, uh, for joining us. Thank you, Tony. And folks, thank you for joining us. And by the way, resources available for you at TonyPerkins.com. We've got a fact sheet on the Equality Act that'll tell you exactly what it is and what it does and why it is dangerous and why it's bad and why there can be no con there can be no compromise or uh, there can be no substitution. We cannot in any way surrender our First Amendment freedom. All right, folks, out of time. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, prepared, and taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.